Good afternoon, everyone, um, and welcome to the damage damages session. It's the first one uh, that I'm attending, and it's a privilege to be here. My name is Rusani Muraudi. I know some of you would have seen the name but not the face, or you have seen the face but couldn't connect it to the name. Um, the, the, that's myself. In terms of uh, my experience, um, I've only recently been associated with a, a, a company that is involved in damages, and specifically in terms of our company. So, so what, what the, 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 the two reasons why uh, the topic becomes quite relevant for us. Um, when I stopped working for somebody and decided to uh, uh, venture out, one of the things that I wanted to look at uh, is how things can just be done better, um, more on an ecosystem level, uh, not just uh, at a sort of an individual uh, business level. Um, and, 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 and medical negligence was one of the areas that, was, um, uh, that I was pointed towards, uh, that there are issues there that will affect service delivery um, from a, um, the health system perspective. Background, I'm a healthcare actuary. I uh, worked at uh, MedScheme for about uh, six years. Then I ventured out and was running a, a company that, that didn't go down very well. And I decided to start one and uh, been running this for a year and ups and downs. Uh, before then, I worked at Sanlam and I studied at the uh, University of Stellenbosch. Uh, I've uh, been part of the Council of the Actuarial Society of South Africa for many years. Uh, f initially as a, a representative of ASABA uh, back in 2010. So I served on that council from 2010 to, to, to 2016. Um, and then and took a break and then I was voted in as, uh, became the president-elect and now been serving on the council yet again. Um, and also involved on the education board, etc. This is my colleague, Nita Kandu, and uh, she's a physiotherapist. And so this is very important in, t in line with the discussion that we're going to have where we're talking about the role of professionals. We're not talking about just the role of actuaries. Um, Dr. Erling here will also um, have his words of wisdom. He's been working in this field for, for many years. And so after we, we're done, he will have a, a chance as well to, to give his uh, views on, on this topic. And uh, if we could just go to the, the, the first slide. <coughs> And uh, the, the, so, so we, we're looking at uh, medical legal claims against the state. I mean, there, there are many different words uh, that you could uh, call that. Uh, some you would say it's malpractice. Um, some would say medical negligence. I know some hate it when you say it's medical uh, legal. Uh, but I think that is a term that is acceptable um, across the board. Um, and we, we're looking at specifically the role of the professionals. What should professionals do? Uh, at the same time, one acknowledges that the main reason why professionals will be involved in any work is to make money. So that is acknowledged. Uh, it's a question of, uh, in addition to that, or as a fundamental principle um, in that, what needs to be done. And for, for, for us as actuaries, uh, sorry, Nita and Dr. Yering, um, we, we buy in more and more into the principle of public interest. Um, many questions are being asked at the moment. What does that mean? Uh, it could become something that you put on paper, but in actual fact, what does it mean to do things in the, in the public interest? For that to be part of what you do uh, every day, what does that mean? Um, so so, so I, 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 I like to probe that, um, and I think in this presentation, 
we we're hoping to do exactly that to probe our role as far as the public interest is concerned let's go to the um so if you look at um, just to summarize what, what i've said so we'll look at uh, the problem and um i'm using stats that i think some of you prepared and you will understand those stats uh, much better than i do um, and 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 th this, some of the stats that I'm using here are a bit dated, um, and 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 some of you may have recent uh, statistics. And actually, that whole process of collecting statistics and doing analysis is part of the issue. Um, whether enough is being done to understand the problem is part of the issue or question that I'm raising in the whole um, discussion. Um, and the, pre uh, the preparedness of the state, um, I try to come up with a framework of um, how would one assess whether a state is um, ready to deal with this kind of problem. Um, and, and, and when you look at it, it's something that I came up with uh, just f uh, from the reading I've done. Uh, it may be something where we can add, there's more work that can be done to come up with something that is actually more representative of what's actually going out, out there. Um, and, and the claims process work, I think uh, many of you work on a daily basis with these type of things, will understand that much better than, than, than I do. Uh, what is the actuary's role? What it is now, what it should be? Um, are there any knowledge gaps in the work? And uh, what role should professionals play to fill these gaps? And Anita um, is going to talk about uh, care packages for CP children, cerebral palsy children. She'll, um, that's the work that we've been doing. So, <clears throat> how big is this problem? And as uh, one of you might recognize this because you probably did it yourself. And, 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 and many will say this is an underestimate um, uh, of, of, of the problem. Uh, already it's big, it's shocking, but it's probably not as big as it, is, it actually is out there. I mean, what is represented here. Um, uh, the, the, and, and, and some of you will be following the cases that are going through the courts and the amounts. I mean, um, you would, the, generally, uh, lawyers speak of the average being uh, 15 million. That's uh, sort of an average payout for a cerebral palsy child. Obviously, there's variation around that. Um, and in the, in, the, in the private sector, I have the privilege now of working for uh, being an independent non-exec for a company that uh, is involved in this type of work from a private perspective. They, they talk about 30, 40, and, and so on. So scary figures um, that, that, that's happening, and that's per case. And uh, you have a few of those cases uh, from one hospital, Baragwanath, and uh, that's, that's their operating budget for, for, for a year. And uh, what, do you, what do you do? What do you do with all those people from all those areas that are covered by that hospital? Um, so, so that that is the, the the challenge that the country faces, the challenge that the health system um, is faced with. If we go to the next slide, how prepared is the state? Uh, let's look at the um, uh, the, the the next that I've uh, prepared. Here. So, wh what I did um, is to read through the annual reports from the different departments, uh, the departments of, of, of the provincial departments. Uh, they're the ones that are facing the, the onslaught. Um, so, so looking at this slide, um, I call it the readiness index. Um, so w what are the objectives? Uh, yes, at the end of the day, you would want to be compensating those that are injured uh, correctly. The question is that, is that what's being done at the moment? Um, are those that are injured being compensated fairly? Um, 
uh, the, the errors um, that, that are happening. Because obviously, during the course of any business, there are going to be errors. Uh, some of them are not necessarily uh, due to negligence. Um, some of them are just because it's difficult to eliminate all the uh, possible errors when you're doing something. But there will also be cases of negligence as well. Uh, but but you, one would also be aware that when you're dealing, when you're working in a situation where there are resources constraints, um, you, you are likely to drop the ball, and hence uh, there's a situation. But what happens then? How, we, how are the, the incidents um, reported and, and managed? And, 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 and also, is there a process uh, by which uh, the departments or the people responsible, the hospitals, would learn from the adverse events? Um, in, a, in other words, is there active risk management? And then um, uh, 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 to build a system to eliminate or reduce risk of reoccurrence. Um, are they insulating themselves um, to make sure that uh, the, the errors are minimized um, and therefore the cases of negligence will be minimized? So, so that's how, not just looking at how one manages the claims that are coming through now, but looking at making sure that these type of things do not occur and therefore managing the risk. Uh, so one can ask yourself that question. Are these things being done properly? And I think many of us um, would say that they're not being done properly. We are involved mostly in the, the first one. We, uh, as actuaries, as doctors as well, um, uh, those that have to give in reports and so on, most of our effort is actually in that first one um, of, 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 of trying to get to a point where a person is compensated um, fairly. But on the other hand, I mean, this is now the one person who's injured. Uh, but what is fair to society, actually? I mean, yeah. at times one has to take a step back and ask, what is actually fair for uh, the society? Um, so if you're taking 15 million, uh, that can pay, I don't know, 10 doctors a year, and, and you are giving it to one person, um, is that fair? So those, those are moral questions. Those are legal questions, and, and they have to be context-based. They have to um, speak to South Africa and uh, the stage of development and the challenges that South Africa is experiencing. Uh, those questions have to be asked within that context. One cannot ask those questions assuming that one has a state-of-the-art uh, equipment and everything that uh, developed nations would have. Um, so, so these are a set of questions that I put down. So if we go further, and we look at some of the things that are extracted from the annual reports. Um, we, we, I looked at what the Western Cape is saying. They're saying uh, they want to strengthen the capacity uh, to defend claims. And they've been doing pretty well if you look at their stats. So they've got the people there who can look at the claims and can throw them out even before the, a lot of costs are incurred. Um, monitor trends in medical legal claims test case law on creation of a trust for funds for life costs of the affected patient and unused uh, funds to be returned to department. Um, and there have been some developments uh, ever since I started doing this work in terms of what uh, is before uh, parliament or is being discussed in the country. Um, and raise awareness of lessons from claims uh, within the department. So that is the Western Cape. And I think if you compare with uh, other provinces that they seem to be, um, if not a mile, perhaps a bit more, ahead um, of the others and and you know um, but but obviously that report is, uh, is a bit outdated 
and and in the last year there could be it could be that some of the provinces have caught up but i'm not too sure about that kzn is one of the areas i think uh, many 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 of you who do this work you probably do a lot of cases also from kzn um medical legal unit activated clinical governance improvement strategy uh, and these are things that are stated in the report as the the, the, the plans that they're going to be do you know uh, they're going to be actioning whether they're actioning them that that's another question uh, efficiency and retrieval of hospital records because so obviously uh, as you would know uh, one of the reasons why claims against the state are a bit easier for the lawyers is because the capacity of the state to defend is weakened by the fact that uh, hospital records are not always available that can um, that that could be used to defend those claims um, uh, adverse risk committee set up in all hospitals and and I mean you can have risk committees but who is sitting there uh, in those committees so how trained are they in terms of risk management um, and, and sensitize staff on implications of uh, medical legal uh, claims and halting mediation process uh, a legal unit uh, a legal audit strategy um, establishment of medical legal center upgrading health system and, 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 and you, some of you would have had experience dealing with the departments, and when you read that, you can make your own conclusion uh, as to whether how effective that will be, um, depending especially on the type of people that are sitting on those committees. I thought I should go and look at the, uh, at the national department and look at who's sitting on those committees, uh, who should be seized with this type of problem. And, and you, you would have people with, uh, uh, with law background, which is necessary. I mean, this is, is a legal issue. Uh, you'd have people who, with a financial background, uh, which is necessary because uh, there's a financial issue. But I mean, if you're looking at it from a, from a risk perspective, uh, you, you have to ask questions. And then you have computer scientists. So the actuaries are not there. Um, and, and, and I think you could agree with me that the actuaries uh, should be there, especially those of of you who are experienced and understand the process um, and not just claims but you understand the background you understand the department of health you understand all those me uh, metrics uh, that would define what happens in public health um, and 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 this is the point of the discussion talking about the gaps i mean if you do not have actuaries there and we're not saying that because we're boasting but our training uh, lends itself to this kind of thinking where you're thinking about how to manage uh, what might go wrong uh, in future. So the, 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 this, this is probably not something that I'll dwell too much on, um, um, but for the benefit of those who may be not involved in this type of work, and I think this is probably an oversimplification. Um, models tend to do that. Uh, models tend to simplify a situation that is otherwise uh, complex. Um, so a medical problem identified as possibly due to medical negligence. A claimant and attorney prepare a case uh, in, could involve uh, expert witnesses. Um, uh, claims uh, lodged against the provincial Department of Health. Um, uh, the Department of Health investigates the merits internally, uh, you know, and, and there are problems with that. Rejects or partially admit, fully admit responsibility. Claimant rejects, accepts the outcome. Uh, the department appoints state attorney if merits outcome rejected by climate, uh, claimant. Negotiations between uh, claimants, attorneys, state attorneys settle or go to court, but mostly go to court. Uh, parties prepare to go to court. Um, expect witnesses on both sides, which can be, in this case, could be maybe average of 15 on both sides. Um, trial, 
and the court considers the matter. It, it, it could be, what, five years, six years, seven years for settlement to happen. And uh, I mean, and that will be somebody who needs the care now. And, 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 and I mean, uh, I think uh, the lawyers do get involved and do provide some of the care that is needed so that the person can, can, can remain alive. But the, the delay in the process, I mean, it, the process itself is, 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 is problematic. Um, you, would, you would wish in an ideal world that if there is a problem and it's identified that it's settled quickly. And, and, and I mean, society uh, should be prepared to to intervene when a person has been wronged, in a sense, and that should happen very quickly. It shouldn't take such a long a process. Um, so, so, so there are problems just with the way things are done. Obviously, this needs to be improved. And whether what's put on the table at the moment will improve this, uh, that is something that we need to um, discuss and debate. So actuary's role. I don't know if there's a Casio or so on. You back to, <laughs> to that picture. So you're a calculator. Um, and you know that the, uh, I mean, I, I, I work closely with Edge and I've seen what they do. And uh, you have a couple of spreadsheets there. You've got documents that come. I think reading time is probably where most of the time will go. And picking up the items and updating the spreadsheet with the items. Just make sure you're not double counting or making mistakes or saying something is payable monthly if it's payable um, every year and so on. And then you get to the figures and then there are duplicates in, the, in those figures and, uh, and, and you, are, you are supposed to just submit all of that with duplicates and clever lawyers will be able to identify the duplicates and remove them. Some of them won't. And um, they debate on the uh, f uh, total amounts and, 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 and that's your settlement. Uh, so, so, so we are being used as, uh, as tools of what, you know, and that's something that we need to, to understand. If you look at the next slide, I ask a question. Um, the next slide, um, you know, I, I, is, that, uh, is, that, is that what we have to offer? Is that all we have to offer? Just be a calculator. Are we happy with that role? Uh, it, it pays the bills. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure the, the companies that do this probably make more money than my company does. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're doing some of this fancy stuff and thinking too much, you, you end up not making enough. Um, but what, what is restraining this intelligent, long-term thinking problem solver? Is it, are we happy with the narrow scope that we've been given as far as this problem is concerned? Uh, that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And uh, displayed in another way, if you look at the next slide, um, you know, are we fit for purpose? Um, and, you know, is that all we're expecting from ourselves? You know, you know, you know an elephant, when it's in the bushes out there, uh, you know, if, if you come there with your, your rented car and you make noise, it can flip that rented car and show you Uriposo uh, Kimang. But you know, if you look at a circus elephant, you know it, it is so docile and it, it does what it's told. Uh, so you know, uh, w in terms of what we're doing, um, is it fit for purpose? Is there more value that we can add uh, in, in as far as this problem is concerned? So let's look at the uh, next discussion. So the, the knowledge gaps: Do we understand enough about the problem in South Africa? Is there enough statistics? Are there enough cases done? Is there enough research done? Um, case law, whatever it is, uh, it, do we have? Do we know enough 
about this problem in South Africa? And that is a question not just for actuaries, but for everyone, for every professional, for every academic. Do we know enough about this problem? So what, what, I, what I did is just I looked at some of the work that has been done. And for, said for me, um, uh, this is actually quite old, but, but I felt it was very detailed in a sense uh, because um, the, the, the sample that was used in this exercise was quite big. I think they looked at about 30,000 or so hospital records in an area somewhere in the, in, in the US. And they wanted to actually, there are two doctors that were looking at these cases, actually deciding and categorizing the incidents into some of these uh, categories. Um, so, so, so on the one side, you have operative um, adverse events. Um, the highest by far, uh, not by far, but the highest was wound infection. Uh, and, 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 and some of the technical things that go wrong uh, when, you, when, you, when you're busy with a, with a case in hospital. Complications. Um, and, and then surgical failure. Those are the percentages. The question is, what does that look like in South Africa, in the public sector? What does that look like? And then on this side, non-operative, drug-related uh, was a big one, by far. Uh, so it could be diagnosis, it could be just something going wrong with uh, the medication that you're giving the, uh, the, the person. Diagnostic mishap, um, and, and then I'll just pick up uh, some of the uh, smaller ones, and then you have the system and other. Um, so the, the question is, so how does this picture look like in South Africa? Th that's obviously a knowledge gap, because I haven't seen something of this nature uh, based on South Africa, and it would require a lot of effort to actually compile this. And it's a question of uh, would it be useful? But uh, I mean, one wants to think that, I mean, as actuaries, we can't do anything without data. Um, there has to be data for us to make sense of what's happening, to understand the parameters, to understand the distribution, and so on. So without the raw data, it's difficult for us to add value. So that would mean that if we want to add value, we'd have to create the data. Um, mobilize for the collection of the data. And, and, and in that process, we can work with many other professionals who have similar interest to, to work with data. So this is just an example um, of, of, of what can be done to manage the problem. If we look at, so what are the, uh, the big problems, uh, uh, types of uh, doctor errors, um, so diagnosis is one of them. Uh, doctors are human. How often have you gone to a doctor, get an opinion, go to another doctor, sometimes a less qualified doctor, and you get a different opinion uh, that ends up being the right one? Um, so doctors uh, will make mistakes. I think if one were to do, and I'm sure that kind of research has been done looking at um, um, uh, cases where you know, doctors are involved, they sh there would be a a percentage that would be sort of an acceptable uh, level of, of error uh, in terms of diagnosis. Uh, but obviously there will be certain doctors, whether it's because of their training or whether it's because they just don't follow all the steps, that would have a higher uh, percentage, uh, you know, if you look at all the cases that, that, that look at. So the question would be for the doctors that are operating in the, in the, in the state departments, um, are they, are the errors that they make, are they normal errors? Or are they over and above? 
And is that more due to the system? Is it that more due to, 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 to the fact that they did not have the things that they needed? And I think in South Africa, we are aware of the resource constraints. We can imagine that it, it's very difficult for, we can't not imagine, we know, it's very difficult for doctors to operate in those environments. They don't have all the equipment that, that, they, that they need. And so this type of picture also needs to be sketched for South Africa so that we understand the kind of problem. What, you know, once you have this kind of thing, you sort of know how many cases you can expect normally in a situation, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a province, in a department, and so on, and, and, and therefore how you could manage it. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, we as actuaries uh, do very well, I think. If you look at the next one, let's, uh, yeah, the deliver care, and I, I'm, I'll, I'll hand over to Nita, but before I do that, this is just an example. And uh, I mean, uh, if you've worked with these claims, you, you would have seen other examples. But I, I looked at it and said, for the case that I, that I looked at, um, I can't remember what the, 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 the final amount was, but, but th this is how the costs were sort of distributed. Um, in terms of what would be needed, future medical uh, costs. So, major uh, portion of that would go to nursing care, and and that that that, that is how uh, the items that that you would get in the reports uh, when you're preparing this. Uh, a lot of it is the time that somebody has to spend looking after the child, and uh, that is a combination of taking them to school, having uh, two shifts, and all sorts of things that you would read about in those reports. I know uh, some of you have read uh, very uh, weird and good and wonderful stories of how uh, care is um, provided for these children. And, and then you, you have some of the others as well, uh, including physio, et cetera. Um, and and so, so, so the question is, the, the ecosystem or the, 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 the how can I, Put it, the availability of this type of care in the different communities. How is that? Has, has anybody analyzed that? Has anybody gone out and to understand the, the kind of schools, the kind of uh, uh, day, uh, daycare centers um, that are available in some of these communities? Um, you know, because I, I think that would be very important work to be done. And, and then from there to think how best can these cases be managed. If we as a country are saying we need to manage this problem better, then we need to understand what's available and therefore also create uh, more um, of those resources if they are not available. That, that, that the same applies to the training um, or the, the, nur the nurses or the people that have to take care of these children. Uh, are they available? Are they well trained? Um, you know, this is some of the questions that uh, need to be asked. Um, so if we look at uh, some of the uh, professionals, I mean, uh, I think at this point, I will, uh, let's, let's just go to your section so that you can actually start uh, discussing this issue. Before we, we do that, the challenge that we have, uh, if we go to the next one, yeah, the, the challenge that we have is whether we are going to be followers or whether we are going to be leaders in this. It's a big problem, we all agree. It, it, it will actually ruin uh, public health. NHR or no NHR, it will ruin. It, it takes money away from the public purse that is meant for a, a lot of people. Um, and, and therefore it's a big problem and, and there needs to be leadership. And who's going to lead 
um, who's going to uh, make sure that some of these questions that we're asking are going to be answered. I think from there you can go straight to your slides. I will, I will drive for you. And, and then I'll, I think I'll come back. No, no, we, I've put them in here so we can continue. They look a bit uh, different, but they are your slides. There you go. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I don't know if any of you have any experience with cerebral palsy, but it's basically um, defined as permanent disorders of the development of movement and posture causing activity limitation, which are attributed to non-progressive disturbances that occurred in the developing fetal or infant brain. So in uh, symptoms um, can include uh, delaying motor, motor, speech, cognitive, intellectual development, as well as retention of the primitive reflexes. So in terms of etiology, um, next slide, yeah. Um, CP can be as a result of prenatal causes, perinatal or postnatal causes. Prenatal causes include infections uh, during pregnancy, as well as medical conditions of the mother. Um, and then low weight and uh, prematurity are also well-known risk factors. In many African countries, CP is uh, considered synonymous with birth asphyxia and neonatal uh, encephalopathy. In terms of postnatal causes, um, there's usually um, some sort of infection such as meningitis, cerebral uh, malaria and traumatic brain injury. So there have been some outdated studies, one in Tigerberg Hospital between 2003 and 2004, and they studied 242 children. 29% of them had suffered an insult in the prenatal period, 38% suffered an insult in the perinatal period, and 21% acquired the condition through central nervous system infections and cerebrovascular accidents, and 12% had an undetermined cause. So Lusani already spoke about Krishani Baragwanis Hospital. They've got a multidisciplinary clinic. And in 2012, um, a research study was done where all the, all the children attending the CP clinic were assessed. And the, the average age of presentation of these kids was 2.8 years of age, which is quite late because that means that they they don't actually benefit from neuroplasticity, and also um, they can actually present with secondary complications in this time. Um, so sometimes these caregivers only seek advice later on because sometimes they don't know what is wrong with their child, and sometimes there is also a little bit of a stigma in the, in the community about bringing these children for, for treatment. Um, also, in this study, 38% of the children had moderate CP as classified by the gross motor functional classification scale. So this is a scale that all the therapists use to classify how severe the CP is. And um, causation in 42% of the cases was due to hypoxic ischemic brain injury as determined by CT scan. Um, okay. So at uh, Barra, patients usually receive outpatient therapy up until the age of three years old, and thereafter, they only accepted at a, a CP school at six years of age. So there is a little bit of a gap in terms of their therapy. 
um, which they can receive at a clinic if, if uh, clinic services are available. So in terms of incidence and prevalence, um, there's a wor worldwide prevalence of about 1.5 to about 4 per thousand live births or children. So that, yeah, that's quite a high um, prevalence. And another systematic review also said that the prevalence was about 2.1 per thousand births. Um, so even though CP is a common cause of disability amongst children worldwide, worldwide there's not enough information ab available about this condition in the African context. So there's an absence of statistics which can give us an accurate picture of the burden of this disease. There was a study done in Southern Africa in 2002 um, and there they found that the, the birth, the CP births were actually a little bit higher at 10 per thousand. Um, so recent incidents and prevalence studies have not been performed in the government because people are just simply not collecting stats. And hopefully with the NHI coming out, we're going to have some sort of national health information repository and we'll be able to collect these stats at some point. So the next slide is about trends in healthcare and health delivery. So we're moving from a state where we're looking where it was all about illness and now we're thinking about wellness. Acute care versus primary care. So that's a big focus in the NHI is we need to actually treat people at the primary care level. Inpatient versus outpatient. This is obviously more cost effective. Individual health and community well-being. Um, fragmented care and managed care, independent institutions and integrated care, and then service duplication and continuum of services. So that's basically the direction in which, in which we are going. So in terms of the therapeutic management, um, the rehabilitation within the multidisciplinary context is actually crucial for CP children. So they need to receive physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy together. Um, and this will allow them to achieve their maximum functional level and improve their quality of life. Um, so physiotherapy and occupational therapy can help by uh, improving and maintaining joint range, managing tone, and improving functional levels. Uh, therapists also supply and fit assistive devices and mobility devices such as buggies, which are the sort of um, wheelchairs that the CP children uses, use. In all cases, um, therapy is reliant on the caregiver. So compliance of caregivers um, does actually affect outcomes. And like I spoke about earlier, there is a bit of a stigma uh, for caregivers bringing CP children to care. Um, there's also the other problem of accessibility because um, some of these CP children simply don't have wheelchairs or buggies to get around. They rely on public transport and sometimes the taxi services don't allow these, um, these buggies to, to travel in their taxis. So there have been a number of NGO uh, organizations um, developed in Africa to treat CP children. The one NGO in Johannesburg is Malumeli Onward, based in Bramfontein. And they actually have a sustainable intervention model which includes training for rehabilitation therapists, parents and families, as well as the provision and fitting of postural equipment, 
hands therapy, and regular mentoring visits. So community-based rehabilitation are seen to be effective by parents who report that these Im improve health education as well as accessibility. So in conclusion, uh, we should be looking at therapy in a context-based scenario. So if you're looking at a claim where, for example, they've asked for physiotherapy three, three times a week, one and one for 10 years, it's actually not a sustainable model. Why? Because also at some point, these children actually re, um, plateau in terms of the functional level. So we need to look at context-based therapy in a multidisciplinary um, setting. And we also need to look at the use of adapt adaptable low-cost materials, community health workers, development of parent support groups, and outreach programs. So I want to go back to, to, to one of the slides um, in terms of a to-do list. And I think on that one you can subtract and you probably can also add uh, that obviously the current litigation process needs to be improved. Um, uh, it's, it's slow and it, it, it costs a lot of money. Um, and that will necessitate a new uh, legislative framework. And I don't think what we have now uh, on the table is going to solve many of the problems. Um, but the risk management framework, uh, the DOH, that needs to be improved. Um, um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And what we've been uh, talking about now is, is more about improving the care for, for CP children in the community, um, the boosting that ecosystem that, that looks at that. Uh, so, so yes, you have NGOs, uh, you've got clinics uh, at the hospitals, but I think the, 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 what the need that is out there yeah, is, is probably overwhelming for the existing resources at the moment. So, so th there's a lot that needs to be done in that space. And, and that is the challenge uh, that, that we have, uh, that we are faced with as a country. It's a, it's a matter of how much of that do we apportion to ourselves uh, as actuaries, as a profession, as professionals, number one, and, and then as actuaries in, 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 in particular. So th there's been this uh, <coughs> m uh, sort of model or way of thinking or a uh, way to uh, sort of approach my, my own work that I've been using for, for a couple of years now. Um, and, and I think the biggest challenge that we face is our, our, our own business models. Our own business models uh, of a nature that you have to do certain things to get paid. Um, and, and some of those things are not necessarily the things that are solving the bigger problem, but obviously you have to try to do those things as well as you can. But when there's a big problem, it requires one to step out of uh, the, 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 that, that zone. Um, and I use the example of Florence Nightingale, uh, who was a nurse. Um, and, and, and I mean, you could just, she could have just focused on treating illnesses and just give them whatever medication that you could give them. But she looked at the problem and said, you know, it's not just an issue of illnesses that people have. It's actually, it has to do with hygiene. It has to do with the linen, how clean the linen is. It has to do with how, who, what, what kind of detergents are you actually using to clean the hospital. It has to do with uh, all the things that uh, people who are caring for, for, for the sick need to do, washing hands and all of those kind of things. She made that part of the solution in helping the, those that are ill. So when she was involved there in, during the Crimean War, uh, she realized that uh, a lot of the soldiers were not dying from bullets. They were dying from infections in hospital. Um, so she had to deal with that. 
And uh, from that uh, came out a lot of the nursing practices that are still being used today. So I think we can draw a lot from that example. And, and one of the things that she did when she went back, and she was bedridden for, for the balance of her life, she influenced legislation. Um, so she published uh, booklets and information that influenced politicians and, and what was enacted in parliament. So we should never think that parliament is out of reach. Uh, when we think that there's a model that can work, we can design it in, uh, collaboratively and, and we can influence those that should be influenced in a positive way. I think we, 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 we as professionals, and uh, I'm inclusive now, uh, we've tended to maybe only be interested when our business models are affected, not when the, uh, the nation is affected in the manner that it is uh, by this problem. So that is a challenge that we have. Um, as actuaries, we can say we will apportion some of it to ourselves, uh, but I think as professionals, why? Because professionals are the people that should understand these problems. Um, the parents of that child uh, who's got uh, this problem, CP problems, they, they can only do what they can do. But uh, the, the, you, know, the, 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 you, you need people that can collect the statistics, analyze the statistics, do the risk management, do the calculations, uh, do the treatment, and all of those things. Invest in the infrastructure, uh, train the, 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 the caregivers, and so on. All of, that's why I speak of an ecosystem, because it requires a lot more to be done. So that is my part. I'm going to hand over to uh, Dr. Yedling. And, and I think we should have uh, enough time for questions um, after his presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Lusani. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great honor and a pleasure. Um, you may not know, but I do like talking. Um, I w I'm a neurosurgeon. I'm registered as such. But for many years, I haven't been operating. I'm really a medical legal examiner. So I examine people with neurological disabilities and I write reports. Sometimes I'm called to court and then they call me an expert witness. Now, I've been asked to speak today about life expectancy because I do write reports and provide evidence on life expectancy. But of all the things on which I venture opinions in reports and court, life expectancy is the one in which I'm the least an expert. So I'm talking here about something that I really don't know anything about. Now, uh, anybody's life expectancy, as far as I understand, and you must forgive me, I'm not a numbers person, but what I understand it to mean is the statistical average of how long a group of people like him or her in those circumstances will live. And that is what we try to approximate when we give medical evidence. Uh, the one thing that I've, I've come to realize is that we are always wrong. Because even when the life expectancy is worked out correctly as the actual mathematical statistical average, half of the people will die before that date and the other half will survive for longer than that date. So it will always be wrong. But as an average, it will be right. Now, the, the, the problem with that, and this ties in very much with what Lusani was talking about, and most prominently in the, in the problem of CP children, is that the awards that are given in court for CP children, 
are influenced tremendously by the assessed or assumed or agreed life expectancy. And the reason for that is that the, the major portion of the award goes to the caring, future caring costs. So an award, for example, of 24 million rand, four or five will be for other things, but 19 will be for the anticipated future care costs. And that might have been worked out on a life expectancy of 14 years. If that child dies at 10 years, you've paid him for four years too many, which is a lot of money. And if the child lives for 18 years, he's going to live for four years without any money, so you've paid him too little. And with the once and for all rule in our legal system, um, there's no proper way of dealing with that. Lusani did mention something which is done in the Western Cape, and that is um, the principle of top-up and clawback, so that if a person dies before the anticipated time, the money in the trust will come back to the, the, the state. And if a person then lives beyond that time, it will be topped up by the state for the, for the longer life. So that, that to me is a sound legal principle if it can be applied properly. Just before I talk about the actual way we, we do life expectancy estimations, um, I want to go back to something that was spoken about before because it's so important. And that is the thing about CP care. Now, all of these multi-billion rand contingent liabilities, and I do believe that you were too low. I think you had for Gauteng a figure of 14 or 15 billion. I've heard 18 and 20 and over 20 billion for Gauteng. So I don't know what those figures are, but they are, they are massive figures. Uh, we also know that the provincial health departments don't have the money to pay that because they don't even have a budget for negligence or compensation. So whatever awards are, are granted by courts, the money is paid from money budgeted for other purposes such as healthcare. Now, we have received in SOMLA various submissions from people who believe that there's a better and a cheaper way to do this. So instead of giving, awarding 19 million and 24 million and 30 million for anticipated future care where nobody really knows how long the child is going to live, is for the state rather to use that kind of money to establish a center of excellence for CP care. And not one, but in all provinces to establish such centers of excellence. I, I have been told by people who understand money better than I do that that will be cheaper. Now that's where actuaries come in. And I believe that if, if actuaries can, can do modeling or planning or whatever it is that actuaries do and work out for the state a, a costing of a system where to actually provide excellent care can be cheaper than the awards that are made for the amount of cerebral palsy claims, the state may well establish such centers. Now, what, what the state would like to do, but unfortunately it is, it is not constitutional in line with, with human rights, is to say, well, all the CP children can just come to the hospitals, the local hospital, they'll be cared for there. Now, the reason that that is not right is because Unfortunately, 
um, the South African public health system is a dysfunctional system. And I'm not saying that because it's my opinion. I'm saying that because there's strong authority for that. I, I'd like to just show you here, on my iPad there's a, there's a table. Th this comes from a publication by the OHSC, the Office of Health Standards Compliance. That is a statutory organization which was established as one of the steps towards developing an NHI, whose function is to inspect state health facilities and report on the standard in those facilities. And they report across in medical, pharmaceutical, administrative, um, all sorts of aspects. Now the frightening thing here is that according to the standards published by the South African National Department of Health, if the OHSC finds a hospital to be anywhere between 80% and 100% of that standard, then it is graded as compliant. Um, if it is 70 to 79%, it's called compliant with requirements. 60 to 69% conditionally compliant. So 60% and above is at least in a way compliant. If it's 50 to 59%, they call it conditionally compliant with serious concerns. 40 to 49% non-compliant and less than 40% critically non-compliant. So if we look at those lower three categories, in other words, those that are lower than, than um, 59%, the serious concerns, non-compliant and critically non-compliant. And then this, this table over here is across all the different provinces. They've, they've reported here on 1,887 hospitals. So of those 1,887, compliant was 39. Conditionally compliant, 91. In the sort of almost compliant is 171. But in the lower three categories, 336, 576, and 660. So by the standards of the South African Office of Health Standards Compliance, the vast majority of hospitals that they assessed are either critically non-compliant, non-compliant, or conditionally compliant with serious concerns. Now, the trouble is that it is immoral to subject somebody who's been harmed by the system to such a dysfunctional system for future care. Um, it is partially because of these kind of statistics that in 2010 the Constitutional Court found that the Road Accident Fund could not compensate victims for future medical treatment in terms of the, the, the state hospital funding system because that they would be dependent on the state hospital system and that was considered unconstitutional. But if Lusani, you and your friends can get together with therapists and nurses and maybe a pediatrician and an orthopedic surgeon and establish a, a center of excellence for the care of CP children where they have accommodation and principally nursing of a high standard and where they have therapists who are essential in daily attendance and where their medical needs can be easily accounted for by buying their membership of a medical aid 
to, to, to pay for operations, etc., as necessary. We believe that that will end up a lot cheaper. And if the private sector, in, co in um, conjunction with the state, can establish such centres, which can be funded by the state, we think it will be cheaper all round and better all round. So if there is any interest, please talk to, to each other or come and talk to us at SOMLA. We really, we have made suggestions in that regard both to the National Minister of Health and to the Gauteng MEC for Health. They've expressed an interest, but they haven't actually taken up anything concrete. Uh, the next thing, Lusani, you spoke about the need for data, which is absolutely critical. And data is something that I think actuaries understand very well. Uh, we started last year a thing called the South African Coalition for Medical Negligence Crisis. And the coalition is between the South African Medical Legal Association the principal insurance companies who provide indemnity insurance, so that's MPS, Constantia Ethical and NatMed, and the high-risk surgical specialties, neurosurgeons, spinal surgeons, obstetricians and gynecologists. We also have representation from the South African Medical Association, from the Nursing Council, etc. Um, that thing is still finding its feet, but one of the principal issues that that um, coalition can achieve is a pooling of data because the insurance companies have data, the specialist societies have data and if that data can be um, kept or, or stored in, or analyzed in a way that makes sense it can become very valuable to planners and um, we have not approached actuaries for involvement in that coalition but based on what you were talking about, it is clear to me that involvement of actuaries would be very valuable. So we would highly value um, an actuary or the actuarial society formally being represented on that coalition. And just by the way, the next meeting of that coalition is the 3rd of November. So if anybody is willing as an actuary to attend that and to advise us and maybe take it forward, we'd be very happy to, to hear that. Okay, now <coughs> on life expectancy, there's, there's no person who is a standalone expert on life expectancy. W when we talk about, I'm not talking about the general population, I'm talking about people with disabilities. Because in order to determine the life expectancy of a person with any disability, you need to first of all diagnose what exactly is the disability of the person what is the medical condition responsible for that disability, what is the prognosis of that condition, and what is the extent of impairment or disability. Those aspects fall in the field of medicine. The ones that I'm involved in as a neurosurgeon are neurological disability, either from brain damage or spinal cord damage. But there are also other things like diabetes and hypertension and depression in other medical fields. Now, no doctor, no matter how experienced he is, can say, okay, this patient is so badly damaged, I think his life expectancy is another 10 years, because he has no basis on which to say that. If, if any doctor looks at his own experience of how long people lived with similar conditions, it's not nearly enough. So no doctor knows that. But yet the, the law 
asks us to come and give opinion. So what do we do? We look at studies of individuals who are disabled in various categories of disability where life expectancies for those groups are calculated. The vast majority of useful studies that we are know of or can find emanate from California. And the reason for that is because the state of California has a free medical management system for everybody with a disability. So irrespective of the cause of your disability, if you're in California and you're disabled, you get free rehab, free treatment, free evaluation in that system. And the benefit of that is they get a tremendous amount of data. So the California Disability Management System has got all of this data. That is then analyzed by statisticians. And in our context, the, the medico-legal context, the best known of those is Professor David Strauss. I think all of you know who Professor David Strauss is. He writes a lot of articles and he travels all over the world as an expert witness. And he has often been um, qualified in South Africa as an expert witness, sometimes by plaintiff, sometimes by defendant. Now, to the best of my knowledge, um, David Strauss is a statistician. And you might call me naive or romantic, but I don't really understand the difference between a statistician and an actuary. And I don't understand what things of a statistician can be done by an actuary or the other way around. But I don't know any statisticians in South Africa. And in the medical legal context, we do rub shoulders to a certain extent with actuaries. Now, so what we do, if, if, if I need to give an opinion, let's say on a person with paraplegia, I'll assess him, I'll document his medical status. Then I will look for a California article that has a group similar to the patient I've evaluated. And it must be similar in terms of gender, age, level of spinal impairment, and extent of spinal impairment. And also what capacity, so the amount of mobility, urinary continence, etc., etc. And if one can find a study that has got an analyzed group that exactly fits that, it's easy because you just read on the table, and I've got some of those articles here, and it'll say if he's 15 years, his life expectancy is so much. If he's 20 years old, his life expectancy is so much. And then the opinion we express simply says, if this person was in California, his life expectancy would be so much. But now we know he's not in California. He's in South Africa, and that's where the first problem of the medical opinion comes in. Because we know that South African life expectancies are not the same as those in California. We, we've got no way of knowing whether or to what extent um, well-funded medical care in South Africa compares with, well, with medical care in California. We know that the courts have made the assumption that as long as a person has got free access to private medical care in South Africa, it is deemed to be equivalent to the care they would receive in California. So, so a person who is properly compensated will be deemed to have the same care and therefore that will mean an, an, an applicable life expectancy. But there are different issues here than only medical care. And we are often confronted with this one says you must use that life table, another one says you must use that life table, another one that one. 
and we also know that there are problems with life tables because everybody in South Africa doesn't have the same life expectancy. There are many variables and factors and, and we have got no knowledge as, as doctors what would be the applicable life table for this person, if it exists at all. So that is where we, uh, th the system, I believe, is more heavily dependent on actuarial expertise to say, well, if the medical expert says this is the condition, and if the California statistics say that that would be the life expectancy in California, then we will make these adjustments and calculate them mathematically to say in South Africa, therefore, it will be such. So I think that is the, is the one important role of actuaries. We, we then have another problem. Very, it's very infrequent that we get a, a, a line in a table that actually matches this person. So we have to say, well, it's between that one and that one. So on the simplest thing, for example, this person is eight years old. In the study, there's a line for if he was five years old, and there's another line for if he was ten years old. Now, how do I know if he's eight, how do I adjust it between five and ten? Do I go three-fifths of the difference? What do I do? I, I've got no clue. So when we, when we do that, we're just guessing. And that is maybe something that actuaries can be, if, if you study how the table is constructed, uh, you may understand and be able to work it out more accurately. There are other problems. You have a child of four years old. You won't find anywhere a study for the life expectancy of a four-year-old child with Senna with cerebral palsy. But what you will find is a study that says the percentage likelihood of that child becoming 10 years old, the percentage likelihood of survival to 15 and 20 and 25. And then I can find another article done by other people, a different study, which will say for a, a, let's say a 15-year-old CP child in this condition, this would be the life expectancy. So then I have to go as a doctor, and I really know that I'm treading on, on, on shifting sands here, and I say, look, according to this study, this child has an 80% chance of becoming 15 years old. And if the child does become 15 years old, then he or she will have a life expectancy of a further 12 years according to that study. Now that feels to me a very unsatisfactory way of working it out. And I would hope that actuaries have got competence to work that kind of problem out better than just the way a doctor would guess about it. There are other things such as the determinants of life expectancy. <coughs> now, in cerebral palsy, but also in traumatic brain injury and in spinal cord injuries, the, the most important functional deficits that have an impact on life expectancy are mobility and ability to eat. And all of the tables that we refer to classify the subgroups of people in terms of their degree of mobility and whether they have to be fed by tube, whether somebody else has to feed them but they can swallow themselves, whether they can actually put food in their mouth themselves, or whether they can eat properly. And between each of those, there are huge differences in life expectancy, statistically. But now there are other things like epilepsy or low weight. Now both of those are known to adversely affect life expectancy. But you won't find a table 
that accounts for this person's level of mobility and level of independence or otherwise in feeding and weight and epilepsy. Now, th the studies will give a thing, for example, epilepsy has this effect on, on not on life expectancy, um, there are sort of annual mort mortality something or other that I don't understand, but it is expressed in this way. And the, the low, the, the, they construct these things called Kaplan-Meier curves that we read about and don't understand. Um, and that if a person's weight is under the 10th percentile, it will have this sort of influence. But none of us know how to apply that. So I normally finish an opinion on life expectancy more or less in this way. To say, based on this person's neurological status and the diagnosis causing the problem, if this person was in California, that would be the life expectancy. But the variables for which I'm unable to account are the, are the low weight, the epilepsy, sometimes the degree of cognitive impairment is relevant, and the fact that the person is in South Africa. And whether in South Africa it's different if the person is nursed in their own home by their own mother with help or in an institution. And so I say, well, I think that the court must be advised beyond that by actuaries. So you will know as actuaries whether you can provide useful analysis of that to the court. Now, coming back to uh, Professor David Strauss, he publishes these articles that we rely on, which have got groups of people naturally in certain categories of age and with two variables. But, he, but he's got a huge database with a lot more variables in the database. So sometimes when he's involved in a, in a life expectancy case in South Africa, he will say, yes, that's what the studies say, but I've now gone and constructed an individual life curve for this person based on all of these other characteristics by reference to my database. Now, that's, that's all very well and good, but the only trouble is um, when he does it for the defendant, the plaintiff doesn't trust him, and when he does it for the defendant, the plaintiff, the defendant doesn't trust him. Now, I've not come across a South African actuary um, being appointed by the other side to say, well, okay, I've looked at the data and I agree with the calculation or I disagree. Now, I don't know whether it is possible for South African actuaries to get hold of the California raw data so that they would be able to do the individual life expectancy construction in the way that Strauss does it. So I think that from my experience, those things I've mentioned now are the elements of life expectancy for the South African legal system that actuaries, I hope, can do. And if they can, I believe they should do. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> There's another mic there. Um, this one here for taking questions. That one. Yes. So we can take, I'm sure there are questions. In Cape Town, uh, we can take <laughs> questions from you as well. There's a question. Thanks. It's uh, Greg Whitaker. Um, 
I just wanted to know what your comments, or what your opinion is on the State Liability Amendment Act, or sorry, Liability Bill, um, and the potential impact on actuaries, and also your view on um, structured settlements that they mention in the bill. Um, when I looked at it the first time when I got it, uh, the structured payments, I think uh, the, the work that was done before, there were people that were calling for structured payments. Um, and and it, 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 it seems to be a way that would alleviate some of the cash flow uh, problems. Um, and then when one read some of the finer detail, there were some problematic aspects. I think referring to the care that's in the state, I think is an issue that was mentioned here. So that will probably be opposed. Um, there were a lot of people who would have a, would take issue with that. Um, but in terms of the whole process, there, there was also those who have an opinion, um, and I think I also have that opinion that it doesn't solve all the problems that are there. So it deals with some of the surface issues, it deals with the cash flow uh, issue, but it introduces some of the other complications uh, that are likely going to lead some problems. So th those are the views that I have. Um, the cash flow situation obviously needs to be resolved because uh, this hospitals just cannot pay that money. But it doesn't deal with the fact that you're still going to be paying those millions, those billions that uh, maybe um, you know can find better ways of uh, handling the problem. So that's my opinion on that one. Hi, it's Ndumiso. Uh, Lusan, just to add on that, on some of the cases where I've worked on what the state has actually done, so they've negotiated with the plaintiff that instead of paying the lump sum, they can actually do installment payments. So with that, then they've asked us actually then to look at the interest component, because obviously I mean, with the installment payments, the plaintiff are clever enough to know now that you need to add interest. And unfortunately, the interest has actually come much higher. I think the last one I did, they agreed on something like 12%. It was either that or the state paid up front. Um, so I, I don't know what that sort of indicates, because in a sense, it, it's, indi it, uh, it, it's leading to more problems, um, <laughs> uh, ethical problems even. You know, where, you know that 12% is it equivalent. Um, I mean, if you do a, a straightforward, financial mathematics uh, uh, present value, you know, are the two equivalent. Uh, but obviously there are many other factors uh, involved there, so um, it's not a straightforward one. Um, but but, but, but it, it's still what the Minister of Health would say, it's still, you know, a Zamazama situation, you know, uh, putting plaster on, you know, a cracked wall, you know. Um, so, 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 so to, to what extent does it actually deal with the actual problems? But we know that the most immediate problem that a hospital would face or a department of health would face is a cash flow problem. So they, they have to try to deal with that first. So um, that, that, is, that is what they're faced with. There's a question there. So my question is for the doctor. I just want to find out, he mentioned something about a correlation uh, whose main purpose and objective is to sort of uh, compile some data. So now what I want to find out is that data only available to people who are members of that coalition or is it also available for actuaries who want to conduct independent research? The, um, th the intention is for it to be available freely to anybody and everybody. So the media, the government, lawyers, whoever, hospitals. The, the purpose is to be a repository of relevant information 
that can be used to plan properly and make proper decisions. Now, the, the coalition has existed in an informal structure up to now. Um, and so representatives of those different organizations have been meeting and talking to one another. We are now in the process of trying to establish a more formal MOI and registering the structure as a not-for-profit company with, a, with an MOI and a board, etc., where the, where the goals and mission and objectives are properly enunciated. The, the meeting that we are planning for the 3rd of November is exactly to discuss the, the, the actual structuring and foundation of this coalition. The, the issue of data collection and analysis is one of the major aspects, but there are others as well. Um, we also wish to promote um, in various forums and places um, postgraduate training in, in clinical ethics, because the whole problem of medical negligence is a failure of ethical practice. So we want to promote and participate or help in whatever way we can um, ethical training. Um, we also want to promote more cost-effective and effective methods of dealing with the conflict that occurs when there's problems. So there's a, a lot to be said for mediation in many cases rather than litigation. The seven that years that you spoke about can be shortened very greatly and there are many benefits to mediation. So those are, it, it is prevention of adverse incidents by various mechanisms, um, collection of data, promotion of ethical practice, and more effective resolution of disputes. So the purpose of the coalition is very broad. It is anything and everything that we believe the members of the coalition can contribute that will help to reduce the, the harm that is caused to the country by medical negligence. And the harm that is caused by medical negligence is measured in money, these billions that you were talking about. But the harm is much worse than those billions of rands. It is the harm to, to such a large number of individuals who suffer pain, disability, misery, etc. So there is a very big crisis in terms of the amount of harm that is caused. And this is an attempt to get knowledgeable and relevant people together to try and reduce that. Uh, sorry, Dr. Wailiu there. So uh, just on the issue of the life expectancy, what's, what from, if you look at the Strauss table, one of the issues, for example, that they raise is that they've seen an increase in tube feeding, but uh, the main reason being that it improved the nutrate intake. And I've looked at uh, one UK case where actually that have actually instead of it reducing life expectancy because the tube fed children have got a lower life expectancy, have actually added that as a plus because the courts have interpreted that to improve the nutrient intake and hence to actually work in the opposite direction. I just want to know in the South African context, how do you interpret the tube feeding? That's a very good point because what you are saying is that there are not only two things that affect life expectancy. Um, and so a person who is fed by others but is not fed enough and therefore malnourished will have a better life expectancy if that person is tube fed because then they will be better nourished. Whereas a person who is fed by others and is fed enough and is fed properly 
will have a better life expectancy than the equivalent tube-fed person. Now that aspect of whether the feeding is adequate or the quality of the feeding, that isn't taken into account in any of the tables. Of course, I in um, just my clinical experience, I think the most important determinant of life expectancy of any disabled person is how much those in charge of that person care. Because, you know, people go to, to hospitals or, or institutions or nursing homes where they get neglected and they just die. So you can, for example, work out a statistical life expectancy of 12 years and then the person dies within two years due to neglect. Now that aspect of neglect or extent of caring, there's no way for us to predict that, nor for any of those articles to do so. But now just to get back to the articles, from with all the tables that they've published, every now and then a, a, a thing will come out where they address one particular aspect. Sometimes the secular trend changes, sometimes it's if the person had his problem in 2010, he'll have a longer life expectancy than if he had it in 2000 in California. So there are these adjustments that come out with particular issues. But I don't know how to take any of those into account in predicting the life expectancy of, of a particular child. So the only s more or less solid ground that I can stand on is to say the most recent relevant article in this regard that I can find is that. And based on that, it will be this if he was in California. Um, now, then issues such as you've mentioned now, those are like contingency arguments that can come in addition to that. So if there is evidence that this child was malnourished and is now better nourished with a tube, then that can be argued as a, as a contingency element to be taken into account. But the medical expert and even the court won't know what value to place on that. And that is maybe where the actuary can also help with, with, with an opinion. Um, th this is directed to, to both the doctor and, and, and to Lusani. I know you both mentioned uh, a paucity of data um, in relation to, to instances of medical malpractice. Um, but what is the closest, or rather, what's the most accurate set of data we have at the moment um, to give us an indication of, of those instances? Um, of medical malpractice, so so the causes, so so is you know are most of the causes um, uh, linked, you know, to 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 doctor error or to, you know, or or to 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 to, well, other other forms of medical malpractice, I suppose. Well, let me tell you the little bit that I know, and then maybe you you can help. Um, in terms of cerebral palsy, which is in terms of money, the the most important one. Um, I understand from expert um, pediatric neurologists who work in that field that of all cases of cerebral palsy in South Africa, approximately 15% are from causes that can have nothing to do with medical negligence. So they are genetic or they are um, um, infections during pregnancy, whatever. So there's a variety of causes that that do not feature in medical negligence. The, the biggest non-negligent cause of cerebral palsy is premature birth. 
because that is the biggest cause of cerebral palsy. The other 15% can be related to perinatal events, the most prominent of which is birth asphyxia or hypoxic encephalopathy. But again, not every case of birth asphyxia is negligent because the child may be born for natural causes with, a, with the umbilical cord around the neck and that can strangle the child and the doctor, it's not that the doctor or the nurse did anything wrong. So in, in, in that opinion, which is not mine, but I, that's what I've been taught, is that something between five and 10% of cases of cerebral palsy are actually caused by negligent treatment by nursing staff or medical staff. Now, in the public sector, that is a huge problem for the very reason that you said, because if a case is brought to court after five years and the records aren't there, whatever the mother says happened, the state has got no factual basis to challenge what the mother says. So we believe that a lot of cases against the state are awarded damages for cerebral palsy when the cause was actually nothing to do with negligence. But the state couldn't, couldn't advance factual evidence to prove what the real cause was. So th that is in terms of cerebral palsy. Um, in terms of the <coughs> medical negligence issues that I evaluate, sometimes in terms of the brain, but most commonly in terms of spinal surgery, I can tell you that of all the work that neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons do, spinal surgery is the biggest risk. So the majority of cases that are claimed against neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons are for bad spinal surgery. I can tell you from my own experience that there are certain common errors that, that are repeatedly made by many practitioners and I can talk about each of those. So if those errors were, for example, taught at undergraduate and postgraduate to, to, to spinal surgeons, that, that these, are the, these are the potholes or the problems that most commonly lead to negligence, be particularly aware of these things, that might be able to reduce the amount of, of, of negligent harm. Um, but I can't talk about how much that represents of the, of the whole country because I only know from the small number of cases that I see. But certainly I can identify trends in the type of mistakes. And of course, a lot of cases are bad outcomes but not due to negligence as you, as you discussed. So many patients who have complications are not negligent. They are complications that happen even though the doctor did the right thing or the doctor made a poor judgment, but in the circumstances, the court would not think that the poor judgment was bad enough to be called negligent. So it, was, it is a sort of a forgivable error. And in those cases, the, the plaintiff has no claim at all. But I'm talking about those cases where the, where the error is so bad or so unethical that a court finds it to be negligent. That is the only thing I know that, that comes anywhere near data. So, I think yeah, we we raise the issue that there there isn't um, enough data, especially in the in the public sector. Um, 
The closest we came with some of the states that uh, Nita um, uh, showed earlier, uh, there was one in, the, the latest one was the 2014 one, which again was in a small area um, where you would have to, um, to, to assume what sort of would happen uh, in terms of the other areas. So, so, so they, 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 uh, they, I'm not aware of uh, an investigation that has been carried out countrywide that would indicate what the nature of this problem. And in terms of the cases against the state, uh, I'm told there are many, many files that are sitting <laughs> in the state attorney's offices. Uh, some estimate 6,000, some estimate 8,000, uh, and so on. Uh, cases sitting there, and 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 I mean it. It maybe is possible to look at the cases that have come and gone in terms of uh, case law and analyze that. I know of a, 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 a an, an institution or an organization that 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 is somebody looking at the case law so that they can come up with some of the statistics. So so I think as it is now, there isn't comprehensive statistic available that I'm aware of, and that's part of the challenge. Uh, and because uh, uh, in this type of discussions you may find that people are aware of things that we are not that we couldn't find on Google um, and the coalition can help a lot the the information from the from the private insurance companies is likely to be very good but also obviously focusing on a certain niche if I could I could I could put it like that so so there is a challenge uh, in terms of understanding exactly what is happening in South Africa you know those statistics that you showed with those purple graphs from somewhere in the United States. Yeah. Now, now if, if there could be funding for somebody with a brain to go to the state attorney's office and study those files and write them up, exactly that kind of statistics could be developed for South Africa. But it would need human resource and financial resource. And, and I think as a sort of a thing, something to ponder about as a, as a profession, and, and the profession does have research funds, uh, I'm not sure if you are aware of it. Uh, and those research funds are underutilized. Year after year, when we look at those budgets, and so we find that not enough people have applied, you know, with a good proposal and all of that. Uh, so those funds are not um, uh, well utilized. And, 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 and that's up to us and to, to, to actually put together a good proposal and, and, and go to even the actuarial society, because they do have some funds and apply for the research grant and do that research. Um, and there's a lot of it that needs to be done collaboratively. Um, and therefore, the offer that uh, Dr. Eerling has, has, has put to us to, to, to interact with that uh, coalition, I think that's very important uh, because this type of thing needs to be done collaboratively. Um, uh, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You don't want to guess where you could have um, uh, another discipline or profession or, or professional or an academic that can be very helpful to answer some of the questions. So that, that is a challenge that uh, you know, is up to us as a profession. How do we take this conversation further? Any, any, any more questions? Cape Town is very quiet. There's another question that side. Is there a question in Cape Town? At least one. Let's take that question. Uh, there's another one there. Just, just got some comments and maybe a question. Um, just to to maybe answer one of the questions earlier, um, so the National Health Service in the UK does do a breakdown of uh, claims and the biggest is cerebral palsy. So I think it, it's um, 
pretty much the same case in South Africa. Um, just to give you a comparison, I mean, they, I think they paid out one point eight billion pounds in cerebral palsy claims in the last financial year. So we can expect uh, quite a increase here still. Um, I think something very important that um, Dr. Erling mentions, and certainly something that we made a submission on, on the state liability amendment bill, is just the whole aspect of um, uh, placental pathology, um, because I think that's something that's uh, not looked at properly, and I think a lot of merits claims would fail against the state if they um, if they could set up some or other placental pathology unit. Um, because I think they're throwing away a lot of um, uh, history in terms of what happened up to the, up to the point of birth. Um, to give you an example, I think there was a study in Tigerberg where they looked at 30 suspected cases of birth um, hypoxia, and in only one of those 30 cases um, was the uh, placenta normal. But what happens in, in practice is the minute uh, a child is born with a low APGAR score, the clinician writes on uh, that it's birth asphyxia. And then what happens is then the state needs to prove that it's not. And without sort of those sort of critical studies, uh, they're going to lose every merits, merits case that comes against them. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I, I think the state at the moment is taking a bath in terms of uh, the, the number of claims that, uh, that are succeeding on merits. Um, so maybe, yeah, did maybe Dr. Ellen comment on that. And then my final comment on just life expectancy. Um, yes, it is important to get a handle on it, but I think in the matter, um, it was um, A, B, and ID against the Western Cape Department of Health where we, um, I was involved in that matter where, where we've constructed the whole idea of paying back the money to the state on early death or a top-up provision on if the child survives beyond the life expectancy. So to an extent, as an initial estimate, it's important to to, uh, to, to sort of get the life expectancy in, in the right range, but I think if, um, if, the Western, if, if the rest of the country follows the Western Cape model, um, I think it'll take a lot of this um, debate around life expectancy out of it. Thank you. Greg, I, I'm fully supportive of that. Because of the fact that we're always wrong with life expectancy, it makes much more sense to compensate in a way that is realistic and when the person dies, to stop compensating. So whether it's that, or whether it's an annual uh, annuity, or whether it's buying a medical aid, or putting the person in a, in, a, in a specialized care facility. So there are all sorts of ways of compensating and caring properly during the actual life, rather than the expected or anticipated life. Um, on that point of the, of the placental pathology, um, we've also made this recommendation. Unfortunately, these things don't normally get acted upon. But if the state health de departments would do an actual pathological investigation on every case of cerebral palsy, irrespective of whether they think it's negligent or not, so they would investigate the actual cause and just keep that on file, so that when the claim comes in five years' time, then it's there. So, so the, the one failure is just throwing away the, or losing the records that exist anyway. But the other thing is that to do specific etiological investigations on every CP case, I think would be very valuable for them. I, I think I'll, I'll go with the doctor's comments on that one. Um, let's take the other question. 
Okay, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, you say actuaries can play a much bigger role in in terms of this whole thing, but I guess for me it's, from the minimum knowledge that I know, isn't it ultimately the judge's decision on how much gets compensated? So how much can we truly do besides being the calculator and <laughs> and I guess get, like doing our own somewhat guesswork because ultimately the judge knows way more case law than we will ever know and wouldn't their judgment be ultimately the best direction to go? So my comment is that the judge rules because he's in a sense forced to rule. Um, people are not agreeing and they come to him and he has to make a ruling. I think society needs to come up with better problems. I mean, better, better problems. They have enough. Better solutions. Uh, society has to come up with better solutions. The judge himself, uh, he sits at the end of this and he has to make a ruling on these things. And he, he's not even an expert in these things. He's relying on the experts. And the experts are disagreeing and this and that and that, creating a lot of work for him. Um, so, so, so I think society needs to collaborate and come up with a solution that is best fit for for society, that that that's what that that's the calling we're making here, and and we're just saying that, you know, it's easy to say somebody else must uh, take the lead, um, but if you have enough knowledge and enough understanding of, of the issue, and, and you have an appreciation of the of the value that others can bring to the discussion, um, then I think you should you should take the lead. Um, so uh, taking the lead doesn't mean being arrogant and, 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 and just saying that you know every, you don't know everything. Actuaries don't know everything. But because they also sit somewhere close to where the, the judge is, in a sense, uh, where they have to actually look at everything and, and, and quantify it, they, they, they then have some insight into what is happening. And, and they can play a major role uh, in any grouping or you know, coalition that wants to come up with solutions. So that's what we're saying. Uh, the doctor himself, you can hear from uh, the, 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 his experience in this, also places him in a position where he can comment on various aspects and the roles of the different people involved. So, so we, are, we are required, because of that we are required, we should ask ourselves more important questions. Um, in my experience, simply speaking, um, the judge is going to make judgments on factual evidence, which is accepted or rejected, and opinion evidence. Um, now, by the time it comes to the actuary, it, a bunch of assumptions is presented to the actuary. So the plaintiff might present one set of, of assumptions, and the defendant might present another set of assumptions. Then the actuary will calculate or work out what that means in terms of money. And mainly what the judge is going to be judging on is which of those assumptions are, are correct. So the judges, are, in my experience, very unlikely to find the actuary was wrong. But that this and this and this assumption is right, but that one is wrong, so change that assumption and redo the calculation. And, and the judge can't do what you do, because it's, it's like a calculation. You know, if you know that three and five is eight, the judge doesn't know that. But the judge knows if it's three or two and if it's five or six, but then the, the sum at the end is, is your sum. So the, the judge is dependent once the, 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 either the agreed or proven assumptions are established for an actuary to calculate it in terms of money. Just a comment on that question. Um, 
I think there's a big role that actuaries can play as, a, as or potentially play as assessors uh, to assist judges in assessing matters, and it's certainly something that I've had a meeting with the Deputy Judge President of the South Gauteng High Court about, and they're quite open to actuaries actually uh, assisting judges on complex matters, especially where we're looking at things like interpreting life expectancy and so on. Do, do we have any more questions? Um, so to reiterate the point again is that we should not be going to court with these things. Uh, we should avoid going to court. We should try to solve them before we go to court because courts are expensive to run. We should actually avoid going to court. We should minimize the number of cases that end up going to court. Any, any comments? Questions? Do we have the last one? Cape Town, is it a duck? <laughs> Thank you very much for, the, for taking the time to come and speak to us. It's much appreciated. One round of applause for the speakers, please. <laughs> and that concludes the sessional. Thank you. <laughs>